and um, to their charts and to all kinds of different things. So we're going to um, take it in big chunks so that we can keep the main thing, the main thing in this. So welcome to week 11 of our Revelation series. And last week, Revelation 4 and 5, we saw one of the most glorious portraits of God and the persons of the Trinity as the veil was lifted and we were taken to heaven. As many, as we said last week, many see as a picture of the rapture of the church. But now as we come to chapter 6, we abruptly return to earth and to, now we're going to view the wrath of Christ. So we're going to go from the worship of the Lamb last week to um, the wrath of the Lamb this week. John Phillips, in one of his studies exploring Revelation, writes, For two breathtaking, soul-inspiring chapters, that is chapters 4 and 5, we have been in heaven. The scroll has changed hands, and the right to judge and rule the world has been placed upon Jesus. Now we must come down from the mountain out of the ivory palaces. Down here on the rebel planet Earth, the tempo is increasing. Passions are rising. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Disobedience to parents has grown, grown up into brawling maturity, now defying all authority. Men have become inventors of evil things, and their fearful inventions have become Frankenstein monsters, threatening to destroy the globe. The time has come for God to intervene in human affairs, so judgment is given to the Son." And as we come to chapter 6, we come to the place in this book where controversy can steal the show if we let it. But before we get into any of that, we need to begin by looking at a, a general difference between those who believe that the book of Revelation is chronological versus those who believe the book of Revelation is cyclical. Meaning there are some that view the book of Revelation as chronological, meaning they believe that events happen in the exact order by which they have been written. Others believe this book is cyclical, meaning that Revelation unfolds in a pattern and then um, first giving us kind of the big picture and then filling in the details, all leading to the climactic ending. And now in my mind, and of course everyone is, you're, you're more than welcome to have your own opinion, but in my mind, Revelation is better understood through a cyclical lens than through a chronological lens because um, if you try to read uh, Revelation 6 through 22 chronologically, it's going to be really, really confusing. And chapters 6 and 7 that we're going to be in today are, are good examples of that. For in chapter 6, it ends with total devastation um, all across the earth as the sixth seal is open. Yet when we get to chapter 7, we see a vision where everything is great on earth. Those are being sealed. And then at the end of chapter 7, we see a portrait of eternity in heaven for all believers. But then when we get to chapter 8, as we're going to see next week, it's going to feel like we're starting right back over with chapter 6 again. So it can get really confusing if you choose to see this in a chrono chronological way. But let me say this. Viewing the book of Revelation in a cyclical way in no way takes away from the truths contained within. Meaning, there is still, regardless of how you see it, there is still absolute certainty that every event recorded in this book is going to happen whether we like it or not. So every event recorded in this book is going to happen regardless of how we see it happening. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. So now that we've cleared all that up, or now that we've made the waters a little bit more uh, muddy, I want us to return um, to earth from heaven, our scene last week, and look at the glory that we can find in the midst of tribulation. 
So I'm going to let you um, remain seated today because we've got a lot to read. We're going to read actually chapters 6 and 7. It's going to be on the screen for those who are going to follow along with us. But we're going to begin, excuse me, with chapter 6 and head into chapter 7. So verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this difficult and heavy section of Scripture. Lord, we pray that we would view this from the glimpse or from the lens, Lord, of our relationship with you, but also from the lens, Lord, of our commission given by you lord that we are eternally secure yet lord we have a commission over us to take this message to the ends of the earth lord just speak to us today by your word and through your spirit for we are listening in jesus name we pray amen and you may be seated so the tribulation uh, speaks of of course as we know it a seven year period detailed in revelation 6 through 19 in which God's judgment will be poured out on humanity in its fullest measure. Now the question becomes now what humanity? Now many believe that this humanity is made up only of unbelieving and rebellious humanity who refuse um, to receive the grace of God in this world. Therefore all they will get in the world to come is the wrath of God. And let me just make this distinction very clear. God has absolutely promised us, his own, that we will be spared from his wrath. So God has absolutely promised us that we will be spared from his wrath. But there doesn't seem to be any such promise when it comes to the wrath of the enemy. Meaning from beginning of this book all the way to the end of this book, we see the wrath of the enemy being unleashed on the people of God. Read the book of Job. God even says to Satan, have you considered Job? Have you considered how you might run rampant in his life? So we've got to be careful, brothers and sisters, because if we're not careful, we develop this mentality that God has promised us that we'll never go through difficulty, we'll never go through trials, we'll never go through any kind of bad thing, and when those things happen, we look at God and we go, what? God, what? Like, God, I thought you promised me I'd never walk through those things, and God's like, I don't know what book you've been reading, but that's not my word, not my promises. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to think about this tribulation that is coming. And and many of these things that we read about are are already here in a small sense. They're here because of sin. They're here because of the effects of sin, but they're coming in a much greater way. We're going to see how we can see the glory of God even in the midst of these things. So three truths we're going to unpack today, and the first one we're going to 
It's going to take a big shovel because we've got a lot of unpacking to do. But the first truth is this. God is sovereign over tribulation. He is sovereign over tribulation. So we begin with the hoofbeats of horses galloping upon the earth. If you remember last week in Revelation 5, the question was, who can open the scroll? This scroll had seven seals. We know Jesus stepped up, he grabbed the scroll, and in chapter 6, he begins to open the scroll one seal at a time. Now, in chapter 6, he only opens six of them. When we get to chapter 8 next week, we're going to see the seventh seal opens, which leads to more judgments and kind of uh, more revelation. But here's the deal. When we think about tribulation that's coming, when we think about the four horsemen that we see in the first four seals, no event that we see in the book of Revelation is happening haphazardly or is happening randomly. Just like we saw in chapter 4 last week where God is at the center um, on his throne, we must begin here by realizing that God is at the center of everything that happens from chapter 6 all the way to the end of this book. Just listen to the following verses. Listen to chapter 6, verse 2. A crown was given. Chapter 6, verse 4. Permission was given. Chapter 6, verse 8. Power was given. The question becomes, who's giving this? And the answer is, God is. God is the one who is giving these things. This same um, theme continues in Revelation 7, 2, in Revelation 8, 2, in Revelation 9, 1, in Revelation 13, verses 5 through 7. God is the one giving control or giving power or giving the ability for these things to happen. Are you grasping the truth that we have here? God is sovereignly directing every part of this book, even the worst details. Even the worst details. Therefore, nothing in this book is out of control. These four horsemen are not out of control. Events will now take place on the earth because God is in sovereign control in heaven. He is in control. But let's see how his sovereignty plays out as these six seals are are lifted or open. First of all, God is sovereign over all deception. So the first seal is open. God is sovereign over all deception. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal breaks, and one of the four living creatures calls forth a white horse, and the question becomes, who is the rider on this white horse? Now, some theologians say it's Jesus, because everything on a white horse is is, is, must be him, just like every person on a white horse must be a prince, right? I mean, it's kind of the way it has to work. Some say, no, it's not Jesus, it's the advance of the gospel. Others say, no, it's um, the representation of false religions. Others say, no, it's, it's the Antichrist. Others say, no, it's servants of the devil. But here's what we know for sure. This is not the writer of Revelation 19.11, meaning this is not Jesus Christ. For these two different riders, they have two different purposes, they have two different crowns, they have two different weapons. The best view of what we have here is the Antichrist, the dark prince on a white horse. This rider fulfills the warning of Jesus in Matthew 24, 5, where Jesus says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. But we must, brothers and sisters, we must understand the role of Satan, the role of the Antichrist, the role of the false prophet has always been and will always be to deceive mankind, to deceive us, to completely deceive us. Yet, understand this, Satan, the Antichrist, um, the false prophet, because they are creatures, they will never stand and have never stood and will never stand a chance against the Creator. Truth one 
In the form of Jesus Christ, truth won and truth will reign. God will bring every false thing to light. God is sovereign over all deception. That's the first seal. But secondly, the second seal, God is sovereign over all contention. So God is sovereign over all contention, meaning war. Look at verse 4. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So as the second seal is open, a red horse is called forth. This horse is associated with war and bloodshed. The picture is this, peace is taken away from the earth and people begin to kill one another on a personal and on a global scale. This is human depravity coming full circle here. Assassination, civil unrest, riots in the streets like we've never ever seen and we've seen a lot. Rebellion against authority will absolutely run wild. No one will be safe. This is the culmination of the wars and the rumors of wars that Jesus talked about in Mark 13. Now we know that wars and rumors of wars have been a part of our history, but they will ramp up in a way during this time like the world has never seen. Yet war and hatred are not in control. God is in control. Now, number three, the third seal, God is sovereign over all starvation. So the third seal, God is sovereign over all salvation. In verses five and six, it says, He opened the third scroll, a third seal, excuse me, and I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And then we read about um, wheat and barley and oil and wine. So war always has a close companion, and that close companion is famine. You have deceit, war, and famine always seem to show up at the same party. And famine throughout the world and throughout the word is seen as an unstoppable and unbearable foe. And it's going to get worse. The black horse of famine is just around the corner, yet the darkness of its shadow already touches the world that we live in. I think of a, a study done by Jeff Palmer, an international mission board agricultural missionary in the Philippines. And he gave this analogy of the world as a village of 1,000 people. So he said the world as a village of 1,000 people, and here's what the world would look like. 563 would be Asian. 60 would be North Americans. Out of the 1,000 people, 60 would possess half the income. 500 would be hungry. 600 would live in shanty towns and 700 would be illiterate. And let me just say this, brothers and sisters, we have done an amazing job. We have done an incredible job. We have done a fantastic job of insulating ourselves from the needs of this world. We have done an amazing job of insulating ourselves from the needs all around us. Yet there is coming a day where there will be nothing but need. There will be nothing on this earth but need yet God is sovereign over it and he meets our every need for those who are in him which leads us to the fourth seal which is God is sovereign over our termination so God is sovereign over our termination meaning death is appointed unto man to die once in verse 8 of chapter 6 it says I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with and by wild beasts of the earth so the 
fourth call goes out and the pale horse comes forth, identified as death, followed by Hades. For, for death claims the body, Hades claims the soul. And scripture tells us, get this, a fourth of the earth's population will die. It's estimated that by 2040, the earth's population will be over 9 billion people. Use that number and think about 25%, I believe it's close to 1.75 billion people killed on this earth. Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer said, the dust of death will be upon everything. The dust of death will be upon everything. But we must not forget, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ, according to Revelation 1, um, 18, he has the keys of death and Hades. And both of these, death and Hades, according to Revelation 20, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but instead, or rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the point is this, Death is God's prerogative today, and death will be his prerogative in the tribulation. One writer said, in these four interconnected seals, so these four horsemen, we see human depravity running its course upon the earth. Yet we must be careful here not to miss the point. We can quickly get so caught up in the four horsemen, get so caught up in trying to identify them, and we, if we're not careful, we miss the point that sin is all around us. And it's, it is devastating in its effects, even in our lives. All of us have dealt with the picture, the consequences, the wages of sin in different ways. We went to a funeral this week in a faith family as a consequence of sin from the beginning. The, the picture is, it is devastating. Sin is devastating in its effects, but don't miss this. Those who love sin more than they love God will be given over to sin and will receive its wages forever. Those who love sin more than they love God will be given over to sin by God and they will receive the wages of sin forever. Yet God is sovereign over it all. He is sovereign over tribulation. Sovereign over death. Which leads us to the fifth Seal, which is this, God is sovereign over all vindication. So God is sovereign over all vindication. The first four seals emphasize the dead in the nations or, or from the earth or on the earth. But now the vision turns to the dead who were in heaven, the dead saints who have been martyred or killed for their faith. So now again, the, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And look at verses 9 through 11 on the screen. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... The souls of those who had been slain, those who were killed, were martyred for their faith. They cried out with a loud voice, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And the verse says this, until basically the full number of the martyrs is fulfilled. So God has a number. We don't know what that number is of those who will be killed for him. So as the fifth seal is open, John sees the souls of those who had been slain. Now in the Old Testament, when the priest presented an animal sacrifice, the, the priest would take the blood of the animal sacrifice and he would pour the blood out at the base of the altar. Well, here the souls of the martyrs are under the altar, indicating their lives had been given as a sacrifice 
unto God. They had sacrificed their lives for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But listen to their request. They're praying at the or under the altar, and they're praying, how long, God, before you judge and avenge their blood, um, or, or the blood of those who dwell on the earth? And their request seems really odd in light of Jesus' request from the cross, Father, forgive them. Or in light of Stephen's request as he's being killed, Father, forgive them. Their request seems like it has a personal vendetta attached to it. But here's what we have to realize. They're not praying for personal revenge. They're not praying for personal vengeance like we would. What they're basically saying is this, God, we're concerned about your reputation. God, when is your kingdom going to come on earth? God, when are you going to show yourself to, to everyone for who you really are? That's what they're praying. That's what they're worried about. They're worried about the reputation of God. And here's the point. Justice has been determined and justice will be carried out. And here's the deal. Sadly, when we suffer, so we think about brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering the fact they're losing their lives for the gospel. And in comparison, the best that we can probably come up with is we have stumped our toe for the gospel. But when we um, cry babies as we are, when we stump our toe for the gospel, we often immediately begin to question whether God is really good or not. We begin to, to doubt whether God can be trusted. Has God lied to us? Is God incapable of stepping in and stopping the oppression that has come upon us? Or we begin to say things like this, if God were truly good, would he not step in and end it all? And brothers and sisters, one day he will. One day he will step in and he will end it all. He will end it all. And here's the deal. For those who gave their lives for Christ, it will be eternally worth it. And for those who held on to their lives and never surrendered to Christ, it will be eternally not worth it. But we can trust God. And in Romans where it says vengeance is the Lord, brothers and sisters, it's still the Lord's. Vengeance is still his. He will make all things right. And he doesn't need our help. Sometimes we think he needs our help, right? I mean, we, we, we would never admit that in church. I look at y'all, you're like, I'm not making eye contact in this moment. But you know exactly. We think God needs our help. And God is telling us, I don't need your help. I'll make it all right. I will make it all right. God is sovereign over all vindication. And then the last seal, six, God is sovereign over all devastation. He's sovereign over devastation. Look at verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. As the sixth seal opens, the world begins to convulse and reel. There's earthly disturbances, earthquakes. There are heavenly disturbances affecting the sun, the moon, and the stars. One theologian, William Henderson, put it this way. He said, try to visualize what John saw. Heaven itself is rolling up like a scroll. The sun, its light blotted out so that it resembles a black sack used in mourning. The big full moon, a huge awe-inspiring bloody ball, the stars turned out of their orbits and plunging to the earth in great showers. The earth itself quaking violently. What a picture of dread and despair. 
And with this seal, the full fury of the day of the Lord arrives and the wrath of the Lamb is being poured out. We read that in verse 16. The wrath of the Lamb. Now here's the deal. I've come face to face with a few lambs. Lambs don't scare me. Now goats, on the other hand, they're scary. Goats are evil. Goats are absolutely evil. But a lamb, I mean, if, if I'm one-on-one with a lamb today and they say, hey, the, the lamb, the wrath of the lamb is going to come at you, I'm like, bring it. Come, come on. I think I can... I'll elbow drop that sucker a few times, do a leg drop. People's elbow is, is you know, it's over. Amen, Dean? You know, it's, but the, the picture is, in this, the wrath of the Lamb, we're not speaking about what we think or what we see. We're speaking about who is the, the lion, who is the Lamb, who is in control. And it's interesting, in verse 16 of chapter 6, listen to this and just read it with me. It says, the people were calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So what we have here is sinful humanity, according to verse 16, is praying. But they're not praying to the rock of ages. They're praying to the rock of the, the mountains. And they're not praying in faith. They're praying in fear. And they're not desiring life in Christ. They're desiring death apart from Christ. They're not saying, oh God, save us. They're saying, oh mountains, fall on us and make this end. Here's the deal. The only thing that will protect a person in that day from the wrath of the Lamb is the righteousness of the Lamb. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, if men and women will not yield to the love of God, and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. Let me say it again. If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. And it's sad because these people, get this, they understand what's going on. They understand what is happening in this moment. They understand what God is doing, yet... They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. They understand what's coming. They understand what's happening. And they refuse to bow their knee to God. And the lesson here for us is, are we walking in the grace of God? Or are we awaiting the wrath of God? Oh, that the grace of God would grab a hold of us, maybe today for the first time, or maybe afresh and anew. And we would walk in and we would be transformed by his grace. And don't miss how this chapter ends. It ends with this question, who can stand? When all of this happens, when all of this comes upon the earth, who can stand? So God is sovereign over tribulation, which leads us to the second truth. We're going to fly through these next two. God will save through tribulation. So secondly, God will save through tribulation. So between the sixth and seventh seal... We're going to get the seventh seal next week. God calls a divine timeout. And during this divine timeout, two significant events take place. First, 144,000 Jews are sealed by God. And secondly, the salvation of the multitude of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people is revealed in heaven. So two truths kind of come to the surface here. The first is that God has planned salvation in tribulation. God has planned for salvation even in the midst of tribulation. So chapter 7 begins by answering the final question of chapter 6, who can stand? And the answer is, anyone who has been sealed by God can stand. So during the tribulation, God will seal 144,000, according to verse 
or chapter 7, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, just a side note, the list of the 12 tribes that we read in verses 5 through 8 um, are different, as far as they're, they're different from all the other 19 arrangements that we read about in the Old Testament. First, this um, list puts Judah first because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and this list also removes Dan altogether. Now, Irenaeus, who was a Greek um, first century church father, noted the tradition that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. Hippolytus, which was a um, second and third century church father in Rome, says, As Christ was born from the tribe of Judah, so the Antichrist will be born from the tribe of Dan. Noting why Dan is removed. Now, I don't know the full ramifications of that, and I don't know all these things. Here's what I do. Here's what I, here's what I believe. I believe that this 144,000 represents specific people of Israel, meaning bad news for Jehovah's Witness. Really, really bad news for them. But here's the point. To wrestle excessively, if for any of you right now to be getting upset or mad about me saying that um, over the identity of these 144,000 is, the, is to miss the fact that both Jew and Gentile alike will be gathered around the throne of God, worshiping Jesus as our shepherd forever. Not only has God planned salvation and tribulation, God will be praised for salvation during tribulation. And now, beginning at verse 9, we're back in heaven. So we go from earth to to heaven again. And John writes, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 7, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So now the picture is those in heaven who have been sealed and are secure. And here's the deal, and please don't miss this. You must not and you cannot read the book of Revelation without developing a global outlook. And what I mean by that is this. We often, often think no further than our families, and God thinks the world. Or we think about our race and how um, our, our race is doing, and God thinks about the world. Or we think about a few different races, and God thinks about the world. Or we think about our nation, and God is thinking about the world. Or we think about a few different people that are a few different nations, yet God is thinking about the world. Or even we begin to pray as a church and pray for 50 nations, yet God is thinking about the whole world. Brothers and sisters, it should be in our heart to get on our heart what is in the heart of God. And what is in the heart of God is the salvation of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That is what's on the heart of God. His heart is for the world. And one theologian said this, Here, the promised multitude is gathered from all nations, and the hope of the gospel has touched all people. God will save through tribulation. So God is sovereign over tribulation. God will save in tribulation or through tribulation. And then the last truth is this. Believers will stand after the tribulation. Believers, brothers and sisters, we will stand after the tribulation. So this response in heaven is overwhelming. And although the picture here is believers coming out of the tribulation, this is also a picture of the worth of God who will never stop being worthy of worship and praise 
And think about this great multitude here. Don't miss this. A few things, um, a few verses. First of all, this great multitude shouts the glory of God. Look at verse 10. They say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So believers will shout God's victory. And this truth is so good that according to verse 12, angels begin to amen. You know you're preaching really good or saying really good stuff when angels start amening you. I mean, I have enough time getting you sinful people to amen me, let alone the angels in heaven. But the angels in heaven don't miss it. They're amening. And all this praise has one focus, one direction, one deserving object. And it's the end of verse 12. To God, to our God forever and ever. And here's what I want you to understand. Our worship of God is not a temporary thing. Listen, our mission for God here on this earth is a temporary thing. Because one day there will be no, no longer a need for witness. There no, one day there will be no longer a need for evangelism. One day there will be no longer a need for discipleship. But there will never be a moment by which worship will be out the window. Worship is an eternal response to our God for all of eternity. Now let's look at verse 15 and walk through verse 17 quickly. When we get to verse 15, we see now the great multitude are serving in the temple of God. It says they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Day and night before the throne, they're serving God. How do you feel about serving God? Then how do you feel about serving God continually, nonstop, with no rest whatsoever? Ever. It's what it says is coming, which begs the question, how are you serving him now? How are you serving him now? Are you serving him gladly? Are you serving him joyfully? I'm going to say something I say a lot around here. We don't serve God because we have to. We serve God because we get to. We get to. There has never been a moment where God has looked at me and said, Micah, I really need you right now. And if you would come to my team, we could make a great pair and we could do a lot of great things. As bad as I want God to say that, God has never said that, nor will he ever say that, because God doesn't need me. But he loves me. And because he loves me, he wants to use me. And God doesn't need you, but he loves you. And because he loves you, he wants to use you. Are you serving him now? Are you serving him joyfully? Are you serving him gladly? And then look at the end of verse 15 through most of 17. The great multitude are satisfied in the goodness of God. It says, and he who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. So think about this. The four horsemen brought hunger. Now no more hunger, neither thirst. The sun shall not strike them by day, nor scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. It seems as if everything that these four horsemen did, the lamb will undo. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. We've said this over and over again, and sometimes we miss it. If we read Psalm 23 or hear it at a funeral and we don't think Jesus, we miss the fulfillment of who that's talking about. For Jesus is our shepherd, therefore we shall not want. And he will satisfy us with his goodness forever. And then let's look. For some of you, you're already done. Just finish strong. Join back in the party and let's finish that last, that last sentence of verse 17. And we'll, we'll finish it together. And it says this. And notice that the multitude are soothed by the mercy of God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
What do you call a drop of water that contains mucin, lipids, lysozyme, lactoferrin, glucose, urea, immunoglobulins, sodium, and potassium? And I, I'll probably butchered all those, but here's what I know. They're called tears. And here's what we know. Most earthly tears come from sorrow, come from grief, come from loneliness, come from heartache, and come from pain. And this, verse 17, is perhaps one of the most wonderful verses in this entire chapter because it acknowledges the tear-inducing struggle that we go through here on this earth. Listen, on this earth is a battle, on this earth is a struggle, and there are tear-inducing struggles that we have to walk through. In fact, what did David say? Tears have been my food day and night. But this verse also acknowledges the tender mercy and love of God for his children. Listen, our God understands our pain. He understands our struggle. And on that day, praise God, he will heal our hurts. He will heal our scars. He will mend the pain that caused all of our tears to flow. Imagine a place with no negative experiences ever. That's heaven. And brothers and sisters, that's our home. That's our home. Let me end with the words of Pastor David Jeremiah. And I want you just to hear these words. He says, in that day, God himself will stoop down to each of his grieving children and somehow, some way, he will dry up tears forever. Let me say that one more time. In that day, God himself will stoop down to each of his grieving children and somehow, some way, he will dry up tears forever. Don't you look forward to that day? Don't you long for that day? That day, no more tears forever. But let me end this way today. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's a temptation that we're, we're facing. And we're going to face over the next few weeks. We're going to hear about tribulation. We're going to hear about all that's coming. And we're going to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not the one going to hell. And we're going to totally remove ourselves from it. And that's not the picture of what God is after here. Here's the point. Number one, we, we need to be prepared as believers to face any kind of hardship that might come our way. And this book will help us doing, do it knowing that God wins. Secondly, we might be safe. You might in this moment be safe with God, eternally secure in Him. But I guarantee you this, you know someone who's not. You know someone who's not. That if nothing changes in their life, they will live and they will die and they will spend an eternity under the wrath of God forever. And this book should awaken in our hearts a desire to see them not endure this, but to endure and to respond to his grace. But the only way we're going to see people around us respond to his grace is if we continue to respond to his grace. Don't get tired of his grace. Don't stop responding to his grace. Don't stop responding to what he can offer now. Yes, there's coming a day where he will wipe away every tears, but he is able he is able to comfort you now. He is able to walk with you now. He is able to bring um, comfort and peace and help and hope even now. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call the musicians forward, and we're going to be reminded again at the end just who our Savior is to us. So let's pray. Father, as we end this time, we do so with hope in our hearts that there is coming a day 
where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And Lord, you don't leave us without hope here. But Father, I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room or anyone that's listening. The YouTube, God, that you would, Lord, just work through your spirit right now, God. If any don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that just the prospect of your wrath would be enough, God, to turn us to your grace. Holy Spirit, work. Holy Spirit, move. Holy Spirit, open hearts and eyes of unbelievers to see the goodness of of Christ and the glory of Christ. To see, God, your glory in his face. And to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But also, Lord, we pray today, God, that you would help us to continue to immerse ourselves in your grace and in your mercy. For in this life, God, on this earth, we are still needy. And our greatest need is you. So help us today to acknowledge that afresh and anew, God. We need you. We need you. And not just need you, Lord, we want you. We want you, God, for apart from you, we can do nothing. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name.